Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you are new or you are visiting, we're glad that you're here. My name is Tyler David. I am the Downtown AM Campus Pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders of the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. We'll be there in just a second. You have a Bible, don't worry about it. If you're going to look on your uh, iPhone, iPad, that's cool. Uh, just put it in airplane mode, don't text, okay? Um, I will call you out. Um, it is so good to be back with you guys. I love that every year we have this rhythm of rest in July for our preachers. As one of the preachers, I especially enjoy that. And so I love that you guys get to hear from different people all over the country, get reminded that God is doing things all over this country, outside of this church. And it's cool to be reminded we're just one of many places where God is moving in power, but I am happy to be back with you. And with this fall, this fall, there is going to be so much going on in the life of our church together. There's going to be stories that you and I need to celebrate together. There's going to be ways that we want God to mature your relationship with God this year. There's going to be ways we want God to use you to impact the world around you this year. And all that's coming up this fall, the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months, like it always does at our church. And so what I want to do in this, this uh, Sunday, before all that gets going, I want to take a moment just to talk about what is the irreducible minimum of the Austin Stone? Like if you were to think about this church, what's the irreducible minimum of the Austin Stone? What makes the stone the way that it is? And what I want to do is I kind of want, want to unearth the foundation, so to speak, as to what makes us who we are as a church. Because what makes us a collective people, what makes us a church, is that we all see Jesus the same way. That's what makes us a church. It's we all collectively look at Jesus and you and I have a similar response. For all the things you and I don't have in common and we don't have in common with one another, different incomes, different neighborhoods, different races, different genders, whatever it may be, we're different in a lot of different ways, different backgrounds. We're different in a lot of different ways. And yet when we see this Jesus from this book, we have a similar response. We have this shared experience that all of us can relate to and say, that most of us who have partnered with this church can relate to and say, I feel the same thing you feel when you look at him in the word of God. See, I'm sure all of you, I'm sure all of you have enjoyed something in your life so immensely that you had to share it with somebody. I'm sure that you, you've had to share it with a friend of yours. You wanted to, why, why do you share it with other people? You want them to experience everything you experience. And it's heartbreaking when the thing that you love, your friend or your spouse or somebody experiences the same thing and they're not impressed with it the way that you are. I mean, we live in Austin, there are incredible restaurants everywhere. All of us probably have a particular restaurant that just talking about it gets you excited, makes you maybe want to leave right now and go eat there right at this moment. We all have those restaurants that you start talking about it, you can't help but say, you have to try this place. And so I just recently found this incredible taco place near my house, and it has salsa, guys, it has salsa. It's so, I've never had anything like it. It's so good. The tacos, it's like this hole-in-the-wall taco place, and I'm not going to tell you the name because it's my taco place, not your taco place, and I don't want you ruining it, okay? I'm not going to tell you. Don't ask me the service. I'm going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to tell you. It's mine, Okay. I found it and I love it. And so I went to it with a friend of mine and so I thought I have to take my wife Lauren to taste this. She's got to try this. So I take her and our kids. That was a mistake because our kids just destroyed everything in this little restaurant. But we went there and she orders the taco, she eats the salsa, she gets done and I go, hey, so what do you think? She goes, meh. Meh? 
I said, how could you go, man, something's wrong with you. That's all I can, I can chalk it up to. It can't be that my tastes are off. Something is wrong with you. We tasted the exact same thing and yet our experience is different. But if I think about it for a second, I understand what she's going through. I've had a similar response where I have seen something someone else has seen and not been moved by it. I know there are people in this room who love looking at art. You just look at all the art, <laughs> if that's what you call it. You look at the art, let's say a painting. You look at these incredible paintings, and honestly, if when you look at it, just something happens. You look at it and you're intellectually challenged by what they're trying to communicate. You see the incredible skill and the brush strokes and you think, this is something, doing something emotionally in me. I look at the exact same painting and I go, I don't get it. I see colors, is that what people see? Green, I like green, like I'm a fan of green. Like I, I don't get what you're getting out of it. And so I find it incredibly fascinating that two human beings can look at the exact same thing, taste the exact same thing, and have two totally different responses to the same thing. It fascinates me that I can eat this taco and want to tell our whole church about it, and my wife can go, meh. I, I, I find that fascinating. And when you think about our church, there's all sorts of things you could talk about that, that we're different than each other. There are things like that that are very different from you than they are from me. But the one thing that brings us together is we look at the Jesus of this book and we all go, amazing. We all have this shared experience where you see him with the eye in your mind and you look at it and you go, gratitude wells up, love wells up, respect wells up, admiration wells up for this Jesus, for all of our differences. That's the irreducible minimum of our church is we look at him and go, yes. Incredible. And you can tell your story about how you, Jesus saved you and how you feel about him and I can relate to you. It may be different, different things happen, but I can resonate with you because I've had a similar experience as you. And this is what I wanna do today. I want us as a church to look at Jesus in a story and just marvel, just marvel. And if you're thinking, well, I mean, I need like some practical tips on how to live my life. Sure. But if we become a people who want to skip over marveling at Jesus, nothing about this church is going to make sense to you. I want us to just look and say, wow, I can't, that's what he's like? I want us to look at him and marvel. I want to look at a story in the Gospel of Matthew, and I want us to look at where Jesus overcomes our fears, because I know me and I know you, we are a people constantly played by fear. So much of your life is driven by the decisions you make, the plans you make, the person you want to be, so often is driven by what? Not wanting this thing to happen, not wanting to be like this person. So often we're reacting to fears that we have and that drives everything that we do. We are a people constantly played by anxiety and fear and doubts about God. And I want to show you how Jesus overcomes them. I want to show you how Jesus practically overcomes those fears and doubts that you have. So we're going to be in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. There's a little context before we look at this story. Jesus has called the 12 disciples to follow him, to learn from him. And he had just fed the 5,000 people, just women and children, 5,000, so probably closer to 10,000 people, with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He just fed them. And then we pick up right where that story left off. Verse 22, it'll be on the screen behind me, through 33. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat 
and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now this is probably, Jesus walking on water, is probably one of the most famous, most well-known stories about Jesus. If you ask anybody in our society, and you said the term, who do you associate walking on water with, they would probably say Jesus. Whether or not they believe in the story, whether or not they think that the story happened, we associate walking on water with Jesus. We associate with him all the time in our context. And so it's such a popular story for us. When something's popular and you're familiar with it, it's easy to forget what the point of it is. You're around it, you've heard it so often, it's easy to forget, well, what's Jesus doing here? Why is he walking on water? What's he trying to show the disciples? What's he trying to show you? What's the point of this whole thing? Here is the point. The point is that Jesus of Nazareth is not like any other human being. He's not like any other human being. That Jesus does not have to submit to natural laws if he doesn't want to. His walking on water and all of his miracles are him saying, I don't have to submit to natural laws unless I choose to submit to them. There are natural laws that God has woven into creation that we have to follow. Like we, you have to follow gravity. If you don't, it will be painful for you. It's set over you. I don't care how much you flap your arms and want to fly, it ain't going to happen. Right? There are natural laws set over you, and that's a good thing about, our, about how God made the world. It's a good thing because it makes our world consistent and predictable, and predictable and allows us to thrive. It's a good thing, but they're set over us. We can't change them. And Jesus is showing that he has such authority and such power that if he doesn't want to submit to the laws of the surface tension of water, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. So anytime you see him submitting to natural laws, it's because he chose to. He wanted to submit to them. That's why he feeds thousands from scraps. That's why he heals people with his words. And that's why when he died, he rose again from the dead because he's showcasing, I'm like no other human you know. He's showcasing, he's making abundantly clear, I, have, I am God who has become human. I am fully human and I am fully God at the exact same time. Now, when you hear this, you should be astonished. You should be astonished. But because we're so familiar with it, we think, okay, yeah, I've heard that story before. But you should, it should be in all that, oh, wait, he can actually walk on water. I mean, the disciples clearly were impressed by this. 
See, at this point in time, they didn't know that he was God. They didn't really get it quite yet. They thought he was a teacher, maybe even a prophet, but they were still fuzzy in their understanding of his divinity. So when they see Jesus walking on water, they don't go, hey, Jesus, our first stroll, totally get it. It's 3 a.m., that's when I normally walk on water. Like, that's not what they did. They freak out. They say, a ghost! They freak out. Like 15-year-old girls, ah, let's freak out. A ghost, why do they say that? Because they don't have a category for somebody walking on water. Who does? Who has a category for that? That's the whole point. Jesus is saying, I'm in a category by myself. She's walking on water, they're freaking out, and then Jesus assures them, no, it's me, it's me. Don't be afraid, it's me. And then one of them speaks up, verse 28. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, while all the disciples are standing back in shock, Peter speaks up and immediately wants to go be where Jesus is. He immediately wants to be where Jesus is. I mean, this is why Peter is such a, it's hard not to love him. He's so flawed and yet he's so zealous for God. See, he's not scared away by this incredible act of power, but actually prompts in him a, a request to want to join Jesus. And it's really important to note here that Peter has a genuine faith right now in Jesus. He's not presumptuous. Peter does not think, well, because Jesus is there, I'm gonna go walk on water to him. No, he actually asks Jesus. He knows if Jesus doesn't tell me I can come out and walk to him, I'm gonna sink in the water. He knows that Jesus has to give the word for this to happen. So in faith, he says, Jesus, command me, if it's you, Command me to walk out to you on the water. Now, Peter, in this story, he probably represents most everyone in this room. He probably represents most everyone in this room because in a room this large, I'm sure all of us are all over the place when it comes to our understanding of and our relationship with God. I'm sure of it. And that's the great thing about this church. I love that about this church. We're all over the place, but something in you, regardless of where you are, something in you just keeps tugging you back to Jesus. That's why you come to this church probably. Even if it's been a long time since you've been to church, you come back because something about Jesus is intriguing. Even like, like Peter, you find yourself drawn to him. And I know a lot of us have tried to run away from him, but they can't just get away from him. Some of you are trying to run away from him and you just find yourself back here Sunday morning because something about Jesus is intriguing. Now, it's not as if, it's not as if you've seen Jesus with your eyes. It's not as if you've seen him walking on Lady Bird Lake. If you have, we'll have someone up front talk to you afterwards or to hear that story. Just curious. Um, you haven't seen that, but you've heard the stories, right? You've heard stories about Jesus. You've heard the promises made in his name. You've heard about this forgiveness, this purpose God gives to people through Jesus. You've heard this. You've read his word and something about Jesus what, is it, what does he do? He makes sense of the world to you. Like something about him, he makes sense of the world to us. That's why he keeps drawing us back to him. Something about him, he's able to deal with the guilt and the shame and the insecurity that we have like nobody else. He actually addresses it. He clarifies it. He's able to deal with all the de desires and dreams that you have for, all the, for greatness and approval. He says all those are found in God. He clarifies confusion you have in this life as it seems chaotic, and he gives a confidence and a hope that is more steady 
and more firm than anything else you've ever found. You get, you get around this Jesus and he just makes sense of the world to you. Now, sure, there are things you still struggle with. Sure, there are questions you still have. You don't know everything you want to know about him quite yet. But like Peter, you find yourself drawn out to him. That's why you're here. You may be here for a hundred different reasons that have nothing to do with God. But I would imagine that there's still a little part of you that's like, I want to know more about this Jesus. He's intriguing to me. And so just like Peter, you have this little, small, probably, at least everyone in this room probably has a little, small curiosity or even a little faith in him. But just like Peter, this little faith that we have, this intrigue, this allure we have towards Jesus is easily swayed and overwhelmed. Look at verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. The same faith that caused Peter to go out to Jesus, that same faith was quickly overwhelmed by his fears. Like Peter is actually walking on water and everything's going great. And then it says, when he saw the wind. Now, obviously you can't see wind can't see it. What does it mean? It means that when he was walking, he got out of the boat, he got on the water, he started walking, he had forgotten about the storm that was around him. He just forgot about the fact that, oh wait, we have been battling against strong wind, strong waves all night in this boat. He forgot about them. I don't know if it was a strong gust of wind or something, but his senses told him there is a real threat around you right now. There's real fear around you. You could die out here, Peter. Alert, 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 like that's what's going on in him. And so instead of seeing the waves and feeling the wind and looking up at Jesus and going, okay, it's crazy out here, but I'm walking on water currently. There's Jesus standing on water, I'll be okay. What happens? His fear clouds his faith. His fear clouds his faith. The threats of his circumstances seem stronger than Jesus' word. The threats of his circumstances seem stronger than Jesus' word. And all of you can relate to this. I'm sure that maybe there's been at least a season, maybe even a brief moment where you probably really thought Jesus is everything he says he is, even for a second. And he is most true and and the most trustworthy. You were convinced of him, but then what happened? The wind came, the waves crashed in your life, and all of a sudden the fear of losing something in your life began to drown out that assurance. The fears in your life began to drown out that faith you had in him initially because this life is so flimsy, so fragile. I mean, every day you're reminded that in a moment the things you love most can be ripped from your hands whether you want it to or not. I mean, history tells you loss is coming for you. You don't know when, you don't know how, and so we fret over it. We make contingency plans against it. And this fear begins to overwhelm us. We look around and our eyes tell us Jesus' way is too risky. Our eyes tell us his way is too risky. I'm going to go back to the boat with things that I'm comfortable with with things I'm familiar with, 
and that will give me the peace that I long for. Even though that boat had been floundering all night, making no progress, and your nostalgia is making you forget how bad it was, you go back and say, no, no, I'd rather have comfort and familiarity than on this risky way with Jesus. That's the way it feels anyway. Your fears, your doubts come from what you think your eyes are telling you. That's what happens in life. You see things, you experience things in this life, and you become convinced, you begin to believe, have faith, that faith in Jesus is impossible. Like, when you begin to believe that, okay, Jesus can't be true, this whole thing must be a sham, that in itself is a faith statement. You have faith, you're trusting that it's impossible to trust Jesus. So you see things, you see things with your eyes like suffering in the world. And you interpret that to mean, well, that must mean God is not good or God doesn't exist. You, you meet people and you enjoy people who have a different faith than ours, a different religion, different belief system. And so you interpret that to mean, well, I love these people. They're really nice. I like, there's no way Jesus can be the only way. You experience in your life your desire for healing or for relationship or for purpose, and they go unmet for days and for weeks and maybe even for years. And you think God can't be trusted. You experience you failing God again and again and again. You make promises and fail again. You make a new promise, fail again. Make a new plan, a new promise, even proclaim it from the mountaintop, fail again. And you think, well, then God can't love me. On and on I could go about how our eyes and our perception, we interpret it to mean he must not be trustworthy. He must not be true. I should be in fear. Now, I would imagine very few of you have said those things out loud, but I know you've thought them and I know you've felt them. I know you have. And when you don't address those fears and those doubts, you'll find yourself slowly sinking away from Jesus. It won't happen instantaneously. It never does, rarely. Most of the time, it's a very slow process. He just becomes slowly less and less and less important in your life. Your Bible just stays closed for longer stretches of time. Your prayers just become more infrequent. You only really pray when things are going bad and maybe if you're feeling spiritual even over a meal. All of a sudden your schedule doesn't really have room for any sort of God's purposes. I'll give them Sunday, but even that's up for grabs. Something more appealing comes along. You just find him slowly just being phased out. Like Peter, slowly sinking, sinking away from him because you're scared and you doubt and you never addressed it. He moves from an actual relationship to someone that you used to know. I have felt this way so many times. I can totally relate to Peter right now. I felt it so many times since God gave me faith to follow Jesus. So many times I've looked at my life, I looked at the world, and it feels completely contrary to Jesus. It seems in my mind, in my thinking, how does this make sense with the Jesus that I know in the Bible? And I doubt everything. And as I've looked back over the last, over a decade now that I've been following, 12 years I've been following Jesus, when I look back, every time I've gotten to that place where I'm doubting, I realize I have done exactly what Peter did. I quit focusing on Jesus. 
and all I cared about was the waves of fear around me. All I did was imagine every possible terrifying situation. All I did was imagine just how great the loss could be or will be. I just couldn't help but stare at the waves of my fear and the waves of my doubt and then feel completely overwhelmed by them. So overwhelmed by them. And life at some point causes all of us to fear. It makes all of us unsteady. It makes all of us scared. And most of the time our life is driven by it. And so those fears produce doubts, and those doubts move us away from Jesus. So just like Peter, we begin to sink. But here's what you need to remember. Not everyone in that water was scared. Not everyone in the water is scared. Not everyone in the water is sinking. Peter may be sinking. Jesus is standing there undaunted by the wind, undaunted by his doubts. This is what I find incredible about Jesus. He can stare into the most terrifying things in this world. The things that cause me to fold up and not know what to do, the things that cause me sadness and pain and anxiety, and he can look directly at them and be confident and steady, ready to save. He is confident in a way that none of you and I'm not like. I don't get it. How can you stare at this suffering and not be unmoved in your faith in God? Jesus is unmoved. He's watching Peter doubt him, and he stands there strong, steady, ready to save. Look at verse 30. It says, but when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Peter starts to sink and he cries out to Jesus to save him. And the way that he sank shows you and me that Jesus was in absolute total control of the situation. He was even in control of Peter's sinking. He was even in control of Peter's sinking because Peter had thought, well, because I forgot about Jesus, he must have forgotten about me. But his word was upholding Peter, upholding Peter on that water, even as fear seized him, even as he doubted Jesus. And you see his word upholding Peter and how Peter sank. Listen to this. Not only did Jesus cause him to supernaturally walk on water, but Jesus also enabled him to supernaturally sink. He enabled him to supernaturally sink. Think about what I'm saying. The text says, beginning to sink, and then he cried out. I'm not sure what kind of water is in the Sea of Galilee, but I've never had the sensation of beginning to sink on water. Maybe it's a skinny person thing, I don't know, but I've never had the sensation of, I'm sinking, here I go. Like, I've never had that. That's never happened to me. There is no process to sinking when you stand on water. As soon as all of the weight shifts onto your foot and your foot hits the water, you're instantaneously underwater. Immediately. But by the time the thought will go, I'm beginning to sink, you're already under the water. That's how sinking works. It's a pretty deep stuff. Peter, <laughs> woke me off the stone. Science wasn't sinking. Um, how to do it, what not to do. So. Peter is sinking, and he's sinking slowly. Think about that. He could feel, I'm sinking. Probably, I would imagine what that means is he could feel the, the water on the bottom of his feet. All of a sudden, he could feel it on his ankle. Maybe going up his calf, and now he's thinking, I'm sinking, 
I need to cry out. The same word of Jesus that caused him to walk on the water is the same word keeping him from completely sinking as soon as he scared and doubts God. It's incredible to think about. Just because Peter's faith was faltering did not mean Jesus' word was faltering. You have got to hear that sentence that I just said. Just because his faith was faltering did not mean the word of Jesus was faltering. His word was just as strong. You and I do this all the time. We project our fear onto Jesus and think he must feel the way we do. We think if we're overwhelmed, then God must not be in control. He couldn't be. We think if I'm not happy, then Jesus must not love me. We so quickly become like my two-year-old son, Henry, who is convinced if he covers his eyes, I can't see him. He walks on the house like this all day long, say, and I have to say, where's Henry? I know where you are. I see you. <laughs> he thinks I can't see him. He can't see me. That's what he thinks. He hasn't learned yet that his vision being impaired doesn't mean that my vision is impaired. He hasn't learned that yet. And Jesus is not dependent on your faith in order to be who he is. You can falter, you can flounder. He's just as strong as he was when you really trusted him. The only thing that's changed is you. He hasn't. He's standing there undaunted by your fear, which is why when we cry out to him, he can rescue us. Because he's not sinking like you are. He's not scared like you are. He's not doubting like you are. And I love that as soon as Peter cries out, he rescues him. I love that if you think about it, he doesn't make him sit in it. He, he doesn't let him sink like, until he's like, like about to have his face underwater and go, do you really believe me now? Like That's not what he does. That's not what he does. And we laugh at that, but how often do you and I with people that we love, when they've messed up or wronged us, we want to let them sit in a little bit. We feel justified. You've wronged me. Cold shoulder, for, cold shoulder for 35 more minutes. We do that. Jesus has every right. He has, he has had no wrong in the situation. He's done nothing but cause him to walk on water and he begins to doubt. He could if he wanted to make him sit in it, but as soon as he says, Lord, save me, it says immediately he picked him up. Because not only is Jesus completely in control in this moment, he's also incredibly kind and patient. He's so patient with Peter. I just marvel at that for a second. He's patient with him. This guy, Peter, had already seen Jesus calm a storm earlier in this gospel. He knows, he has seen, this Jesus is in control of the weather. I've seen that already. But he loves Peter, and he's patient with him, and he's teaching him. Don't look at that sentence where he goes, oh, you have a little faith, why did you doubt, as Jesus kind of shaming him. He's instructing him. He's teaching him. He's saying, Peter, you've already seen me handle things. You've already seen me do supernatural things. Did you already forget? He doesn't say you have no faith. He says you have little faith right now. Peter, did you really think your fears are more trustworthy than my word? Did you already forget who I am? See, the antidote for your fear is not to ignore it or to obsess over it. It's to focus on the one who's not scared like you. That changed my life when I realized that. That I love that Jesus doesn't downplay his fears. Jesus doesn't say, why were you even scared? No, he gets, there are real threats 
on that water, there are real threats in this life. He just puts the emphasis on himself. He says, I know it's scary. Trust me, I'm not scared. I run the world. I'm not scared. I will take care of you. Focus on my word, my love, my work, my promises. And while the, this whole scene is happening, the other disciples are in the boat the whole time watching this. And they respond when they see Jesus for who he is in wonder. In wonder. Look at verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. As if Jesus was saying, the lesson's over. Verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. They saw his power. They saw his authority, his mercy, his love all in one scene. And the response is worship. At that point in time, they don't know all that they will know about Jesus. But in that moment, they know enough to know he deserves highest honor, highest title, highest admiration, highest love, highest respect. They know he does. It's a response that comes naturally. No one tells them, time to worship now, guys. Cue it up. Like that, no one does that. You don't have to when you see Jesus. It just is impromptu. It happens when you see him for who he is. And that response of those disciples in the boat, I mean, it captures perfectly who we are and who we want to be as a church. It captures perfectly why the Austin Stone is the way it is. We see what they saw, and in our best moments, we see and we go, yes, he deserves everything. There's nobody like him. We find ourselves in total agreement with what he said. We find something in us welling up in joy and in love for this Jesus. Now, let's say, let's say you hear this story, and not just this one, but other stories like it, other sermons like this, you've heard about Jesus, and to be completely transparent, if you were honest, we could cut through all the, the right answers that you know you're supposed to give and how you actually feel and how you, your actual response, and you would say, I'm just not that wowed by him. Let's say that's you, that you're just not that wowed by him. You're not opposed to Jesus, you're not anti-Jesus, but you hear all that and you've heard, him before, heard it before and you go, sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I like this church, that's pretty good, and, you know, that was funny, I like that, you know. Sure, why not? Like, if there's never where it's been inconsistent, just no real wonder, no real awe, no real love for him. If, if you look at the Jesus of this book and you're just consistently not that impressed, you're never going to understand this church. You're just never going to get it. You're, you're never going to, this church will never quite make sense to you if you keep looking at Jesus and nothing in you is floored by him. You won't get it. You won't understand why we're never content for you to just walk in the doors on Sundays. You'll always think, geez, guys, I'm already coming on Sunday. What more do you want from me? You'll never understand why we ask you to give up your weeknights and your weekends to have intentional friendships with Christians and non-Christians. You will not understand why we'll talk to you about your money and your generosity towards Jesus being worshipped in all the earth. You won't understand why we call you to serve to be trained for ministry, to lead in this city, to use your vocation for great things and works of justice and mercy. You won't get it. 
you won't get why we sing so loud, why we ask you to care about so many different things. Over time, we'll feel a little overzealous to you. You'll find yourself maybe saying things like, man, I wish they would just tone it down. All things in moderation, right? You'll never quite get this church. Now listen, I am not saying we are a people or a church who have it all together. I know me, and I know you for sure. We don't have it all together. I know that. The thing we have in common with this church is I, I know my biggest problem is my own sin. It's not any of you or this world. It's me. We are a weak, flawed, limited people. But here's what keeps happening for us as a community. Jesus just keeps impressing us. I keep failing. I keep showing myself to be way less strong than I thought that I was. And Jesus keeps showing himself to be everything he said he was. He just keeps showing off, and we're, we're in awe. I'm going, I can't believe he keeps forgiving. I can't believe he keeps saving. I can't believe he is who he says he is. We are in awe together. And so here's what happens. When you're in awe of Jesus, what do you want to do? You want to order your life around him. You want to, and in some ways you kind of have to, don't you? You're in awe of him. You're thinking, if I don't order my life around him, something's off. It's like when you see something so beautiful, you're almost morally obligated to respond to it. So here's my question for you. Where are you right now with Jesus? Not, where have you been historically? And if you were good like two years ago, you're probably good now, or you've been a Christian your whole life. Don't answer with that question. How are you doing right now? When's the last time you were in awe of his forgiveness for you? Now, you may not express it the way I do. You're thinking, well, I don't shout like that, so I could never in awe. It's not what I mean. You just were never, you never had that sensation well up inside of you of love for him, excitement about him. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe if you're honest, you're thinking, I could relate to you three years ago before this and this and this happened. I could relate to you two months ago. Or you're thinking, I just don't relate to what you're saying. I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, I understand all the information, but I've never felt like that about Jesus. Here are the two worst things you can do. If that's you, on the one end, the, uh, the worst thing you can do is just to give up and leave. That's the worst thing because you're going to miss out on Jesus. And the other worst thing you can do is just ignore that and keep going through the religious motions. Those are the two worst things you can do. Here, here are two things you should do. If you're saying, honestly, I have never felt that for Jesus in a long time, here are two things you need to do. One, follow Peter's lead and ask Jesus to command you to come to him. Follow his lead and pray, God, help me believe, help me see, help me see how great you actually are. As I thought about this, that is the most consistent prayer that I pray. The most, the most consistent prayer that I was thinking about in my prayer life, what I pray most often is, God, help me believe more than I do. God, help me in this, in this area. I know I don't believe that you're strong enough in this. I know I don't believe you're merciful to me in this. And I say, God, help me believe what you've already said about yourself. Call me to you. Give me the word. That's all that I need. So ask Jesus to command you to come to him. And then secondly, secondly, overlap your life your life with other people who are in awe of Jesus. You will never be able to do this on your own. You won't. I can't do it. You can't do it. You need other people to help 
show you how to see Jesus for as great as he is. You get this in every other area of your life. If you wanted to work out, you're going to be around other people who what? Work out. Probably not a good idea, a good idea to hang out with the, the donut club that, that week. I mean, they're not going to get it, right? Is there a donut club? Maybe, I don't know. But there is, I'm in. So maybe not a good idea, right? What do you do if you want to achieve a goal? You tend to orbit your life with people who have a similar goal. You want to see Jesus as great? Get around people who want to see Jesus as great. So in this church, really practically, get to know people in this church, get to be known by people in this church. Don't sit on the sidelines, make it happen. Over the next couple of weeks and months, we're gonna have all sorts of ways for you to do this. Will it be awkward and uncomfortable? Probably. But will it be worth it when people help you see Jesus as great? Absolutely. Let's make that happen. And lastly, if you find yourself right now and you're genuinely in awe of Jesus, don't let it end in just awe in Jesus. Let's be in awe of Jesus together and go show this world how great he is. Don't let your awe in Jesus just stop with, man, I really do love him, and that's it. And that's it, because Jesus doesn't want you using this church simply to be taught and led. He wants you to be a part of this church, serving, leading, and giving your life away with this church. What did Jesus do with Peter? He didn't just say, behold, how great I am. He said, well, come do what I do. You know what he did? Come do what I do. Come walk on water with me. And that wasn't the last time that he would call Peter and the other disciples to come do what he did. And that's what he's called every disciple to do. Come do what I do. And what Jesus is calling you to do is not, listen, to not go walk on water today. It's probably not going to happen. The test today is not go, I'm going to go walk on water. That's not what Jesus wants you to do because that wasn't his greatest feat. The greatest act of power Jesus ever demonstrated was laying his life down in love. That was his greatest act. So if you're here and you're in awe of Jesus, great. Let's go lay our lives down for this city. Let's go do it. Because everything we're doing as a church is helping you order your life around this Jesus. Every event, every training, every announcement, every email that you don't read that we send you, please read them. <laughs> Seriously, read them. Um, everything we're doing ordered around this Jesus. And so when you see Jesus for who he is, ordering your life around him makes all the sense in the world. And then this church and everything we're doing will make all the sense in the world. Let's pray together. Father, would you please make us a people who see Jesus for who he actually is? God, please make us a people who see him for who he actually is. God, save us from being a people who are genuinely bored by him, unimpressed by him, because, God, that means we haven't seen him for who he actually is. God, would you make the Austin Stone known as a bunch of people who are honest about our weaknesses, honest about our fears, honest about our doubts, and honest that we genuinely believe Jesus is stronger than all of those. Honest that we genuinely believe this Jesus got bought forgiveness for us and anyone who would believe in his name, that we'd be a people who order our lives around him and our futures around him and our bank accounts around him and our schedules around him because we have seen and behold, beheld that he is indeed the son of God. God, I want that for me and I want that for us. God, would you do it in this church this year, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.